This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel. Challenge the status quo. It's never easy to challenge the accepted leaders, and especially if you're a woman. Provide perspective on why your healthcare journey may be so tough. All of that fear and worry, it all upregulates our nervous system, puts us into fight or flight mode, and increases our pain sensitivity. And what you can do about it. The number one thing is you have to advocate for yourself, and you have to be prepared. Your journey to get empowered starts now. Not all OBGYNs want to or are trained to or are at the stages of their careers where they are, you know, seeing so many menopausal patients. And I think that's really important. You know, my field has really kind of almost divided into the obstetrical end and the uh, gynecologic sides and then surgeries, urogynecology uh, and, and menopause and sexual health specialists are almost subspecialists at this time. So for your listeners, if your OBGYN doesn't seem to be, you know, giving the answers that you might be interested in hearing, it's reasonable to look on the North American Menopause Society's list of trained providers and maybe a specialist in the field of menopause might be somebody that would be a good option to uh, get another opinion from. Perimenopause, menopause, and postmenopause are phases of life that we all go through, yet we're really just beginning to talk about it publicly and in a less shameful way. However, let's face it, we do still deal with symptoms that may not be so fun to have. So today we are here to talk about the symptom management in these phases of life with Dr. Alyssa Dweck. She's a practicing gynecologist and chief medical officer of Bonafide. She's been practicing for over 25 years and has a special interest in menopausal health and training in female sexual health. And she's also the co-author of books such as The Complete A to Z for Your V and The Sexual Spark V is for Vagina. And you can check out my show notes for links to those books. She's also been on The Today Show and Good Day LA. So let's dive in with Dr. Dweck first defining what these stages of life mean. Why don't we start out by just defining that perimenopause, menopause, and postmenopause phases so that people understand the the terminology. Sure. And I'm really glad you're asking that because there's still so much misinformation out there about these definitions. In essence, this is all a continuum. Menopause is defined by 12 consecutive months without menstruation for no other obvious reason. Uh, The average age in the U.S. is about 51 and a half. Perimenopause are the years leading up to menopause. Some women recognize this to be anywhere from four to 10 years, but sometimes symptoms of perimenopause can be difficult to really identify or connect with because, you know, there's a little bit of a disconnect with some of these symptoms, but they can go on for quite some time. And then postmenopause is technically every day after menopause. So even though we like to distinguish these three terms, they really are a continuum. Is it true that a woman could bleed in postmenopause? And does that mean something else? Or is it just something that is a fluke that can happen as well? I just want to get that straight as well. 
Yeah, so postmenopausal bleeding is actually not normal and tends to warrant investigation. Again, going back to this 12 consecutive months without menstruation, if someone goes 11 months and 10 days without menstruation and then has some bleeding, technically that is not postmenopausal bleeding, but the clock towards menopause starts all over again. If someone does go 12 months without their period and then bleeding occurs after that time, it is considered postmenopausal bleeding, not normal, and warrants a, a workup, which could include an ultrasound, some blood work, maybe a biopsy. It, it's really individualized. I tracked during my um, infertility years, and it was four years. I was like, I'm done tracking. I'm done worrying about supplements. I'm just done, done, done. And then just doing this podcast, I'm like, you know, I should start tracking again. And I'm so glad I did because now I'm going to know when my 12 month hits. I'm, I think I'm, it was like around Thanksgiving. So I'm just waiting. <laughs> Absolutely. And I tend to tell people to put a smiley face at that time because there is so much liberation when this occurs and I like to frame it in a positive light. I will say that I see people in my office all the time who have not tracked and they really can't remember 12 months back. So it's super important to keep that in a calendar. Okay, good. So when we're in our 40s, um, even if you are traumatized by your fertility treatments, start tracking. All right. So, um, one of the questions that I see most commonly asked is, what are the first signs of perimenopause? And then we can talk about how those um, symptoms differ as we start getting closer to menopause. So first, let's start about those initial signs. The first signs are typically changes to the menstrual habits. Most commonly, we'll see a skipped period or we'll see a couple of months without a period. A lot of times we'll see some beginnings of what we call vasomotor symptoms, so hot flashes during the day, nights, night sweats at night, which are hot flashes at night. Uh, but one symptom that tends to be a little bit difficult to recognize or make the connection that it might be a hormonal issue are the mood changes that come along with. So women often complain of irritability or you know lack of patience for things that they typically had a lot of patience for and just not feeling like they're 100% themselves. So once we make sure there's nothing really organically medically going, going on, Oftentimes, we'll attribute that to the perimenopausal time, especially when it's combined with irregular bleeding. Okay. So now, birth control is extremely common. How would someone know if they're on birth control or other other factors too? So first, let's start with, well, I don't know if we have to separate it out, if it's birth control or other things that could contribute to not being clear. Like, for example, I have endometriosis, and a lot of the symptoms are, the, are similar, Right you know, then there's people with PCOS. And so there's a lot of different things that lead to irregularity. And plus we're women, like there's stress, all these things impact our hormones. And so now that I'm so much more educated, I'm like, I can't tell when my perimenopause began. And so I guess another question too is like, does it really matter? So tell us about, you know, this phase of, you know, our hormones are changing, weird things are happening. And does it even matter if we call it perimenopause? You know, normally what we'll do is check blood work to see what female hormones look like, although technically speaking, this is not the way we diagnose menopause. 
Blood work to check hormone levels is typically used just to support a diagnosis of perimenopause or menopause. We often check for things like thyroid irregularities. The symptoms of thyroid trouble can often mimic perimenopausal changes, whether it's uh, weight change, appetite change, hair change, uh, bleeding habit changes, mood changes, fatigue levels. So that's important because it's treated in a completely different way than with uh, contraception or uh, birth control to help with bleeding control. Women who have had uh, previous surgeries, like what is called a uterine ablation, which is something that's used to control bleeding, oftentimes they lose their menstrual cycle or they have irregular or erratic bleeding and it can be difficult to tell when they're traversing perimenopause. So this is where blood work may come in handy. Um, In addition, um, obviously women who have had a hysterectomy where their uteruses are removed, but their ovaries are still in place, they will go through usually a natural menopause when their ovaries stop functioning, but it's often difficult to tell because they're not having bleeding to give a supportive diagnosis. So we use blood work and individual symptoms to figure that out. Uh, Finally, you bring up PCOS and endometriosis or people on birth control. Symptoms of perimenopause may get masked, but those people are not coming in to diagnose whether they're perimenopausal because they feel typical and normal and they know what their general day-to-day feelings are like. So it's those who are coming in with symptoms, even if they're on birth control or even if they have a medical condition, uh, you know, we'll look into it with studies, blood work, and individual symptoms. And so I guess just quickly to summarize, because this is a really important point, um, is you cannot use blood work to diagnose perimenopause because the hormone levels are changing so much that you're taking it at a point in time. And so I like what you said is, you know, you're ruling out other things first because that's more important. So then would you say at, at that point when you've ruled everything out, it's really symptom management? Exactly. And look, some women have symptoms that are notable, but they don't necessarily need to do something about them. In other words, if it's not interfering with their day-to-day life or their relationships or their professional lives or whatnot, they can go about their business and just feel reassured that whatever symptoms they're having are due to perimenopause and they go about their businesses. But others are really distressed by symptoms. Their day-to-day lives are interfered with and we do need to intervene. I do want to bring up one thing that is super important. For women who are in the perimenopausal time, so they may have super irregular periods, they may even have gone eight or 10 months without their period, if they are still sexually active and have the potential for pregnancy, they need to use birth control to prevent that if they don't want to be pregnant. I would like to break this up just since we're talking about perimenopause and menopause is a day, then there's postmenopause. Let's continue with perimenopause and talk about the common symptoms and how to handle them. So there's a few key ones like vaginal dryness, uncomfortable sex, which I'm not sure is equivalent to vaginal dryness or other things, uh, low libido, and obviously hot flashes, and no lack of sleep, all of these. And so I don't know if we need to break them each into parts or if there's like a thematic thing that you can cover around these symptoms. Yeah, I I, th- I think it's really difficult to compartmentalize everything in just neat little boxes because some women will experience lots of symptoms in different severities and for different durations of time, and others uh, will have maybe one symptom or no symptoms. 
Uh, like I said, irregular bleeding is usually the first uh, symptom or sign in perimenopause. So control of that either hormonally or with an IUD or no control at all or a surgical rem remedy is something that we consider. Um, in terms of uh, hot flashes, yes, this is a common symptom. Uh, again, unless it's interfering with day-to-day -day life or sleep, it doesn't need to be treated, but I often suggest treatment because why shouldn't women feel like they're at their best and at the top of their game? Um, and if sleep is being interrupted, it's just going to further lead to fatigue during the day or feeling that irritability or having less tolerance or patience or just not uh, feeling at uh, their top uh, of their game. So I think these things can be treated in many ways. Hot flashes and night sweats tend to have some re good responses to lifestyle changes. So the Mediterranean diet is something that we often recommend. Uh, we often recommend avoiding triggers. Common triggers include caffeine, alcohol, stress, smoking, being overweight or over the standard uh, suggested BMI for your height, um, and uh, spicy foods, large meals. So these are all things that can be managed. Uh, number three, I often note and that patients are interested in, but also recommend non-hormonal treatments first, because hormones work, absolutely, but they do come with some baggage. And what I'm finding, at least in my practice here in New York, is that many, many women would prefer to try something non-hormonal and a little less aggressive first. Um, of course, um, uh, Bonafide does put out a wonderful and very well-studied herbal supplement called Relizin, which has been around for quite some time and has amazing studies that show safety and efficacy uh, behind it. This is a Swedish flower pollen that probably works through serotonin pathways in the brain to help with vasomotor symptoms. So this has been a game changer for lots of my patients. There are other over-the-counter supplements that are soy-based or phytoestrogen-based, and they have mixed results, but some people find them very helpful. This would be something like black cohosh or evening primrose oil, which women often find over-the-counter before they ever come into my office. Um, believe it or not, we often recommend antidepressants for the perimenopausal or menopausal population when they're suffering with hot flashes or night sweats. There are several that actually have FDA approval and are indicated for hot flashes. So these can be helpful, especially in women who might already be dealing with signs of subclinical depression or anxiety and uh, want to take the edge off. So again, this is individualized. Um, there are other pharmacology preparations, one called gabapentin, one called um, uh, clonidine. So these are other medications that may be helpful for these particular symptoms. Lastly, hormone replacement therapy. It works. It's estrogen with or without progesterone. Lots of women do turn to this, but there's definitely, uh, you know, the individual who cannot or will not take hormone therapy. So that's a whole other conversation, um, but certainly an option. Can you define night sweats versus hot flashes? Well, the thought is that they really both emanate from the same mechanism, which is that the brain's thermostat, which is called the thermoregulatory zone in an area of the brain, 
is altered due to, in part to uh, the fact that there's less estrogen in the bloodstream and the estrogen receptors in the brain are therefore uh, um, responding in a different way. And what this does is it makes women have a much narrower comfort zone, comfort zone of what temperature is uh, appropriate for them. So instead of being able to tolerate a wide range of temperatures, women can only tolerate a small range and so they get super hot. Uh, what happens with a traditional hot flash during the day is that women will all of a sudden notice that they get an incredible wave of heat, usually from the chest up. They subsequently break out in this massive uh, bout of perspiration, and then they start to cool off. And this can last for, you know, 30 seconds up to a minute or two. Some people get a few of them. Some people get them throughout the day 20 or 30 times, and they can be super disruptive. Similarly, at night when you're sleeping, you will be awakened by this similar type of uh, phenomenon. But what happens at night is oftentimes, you know, you're in your sleep and you break out in such perspiration that your sleep clothes get soaked. Then it starts to evaporate and you end up with chills. So this often wakes women up in the middle of the night. They feel the need to change their clothes. It's very disruptive, especially if it's happening multiple times because it interrupts the sleep. So they're probably starting out in the same mechanism, but they just feel a little bit different to people. I mean, people experience this differently. And what I normally hear from my patients is that their bed partners are the ones who seem like furnaces and they can't be near them. They're on a different temperature planet from them. And uh, they've got all the air conditioner really high or the windows open in the winter and fans blowing all over the place. And their partners are usually wearing a hooded sweatshirt. So it's, uh, I guess it's all perspective, right? Okay. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Thank you. And then one thing I did want to get to is you were saying all the things too that could be triggers. So some might listen to you and be like, okay, seriously, like I can't cut all this out. What am I going to do? How can someone assess the triggers? Because to just say, oh, by the way, you've hit this phase of life that comes with this societal like negative, you know, perspective and oh, by the way, now eliminate everything good in your life. So tell us more about that. Yeah, look, I think most women do tend to start to recognize what their individual triggers are and make a wise decision based on their own needs. I can manage the hot flash that comes from the wine because I prefer to have a glass of wine, or I can manage the hot flash that comes from caffeine because I'm surely not giving that up. But sometimes if they recognize what their triggers are, they can do other things to mitigate. So, you know, have a fan nearby or make sure they're wearing the proper clothing to be moisture wicking or not too hot. So for example, turtlenecks are out of the question for lots of menopausal women and they're fine giving that up. Uh, but, uh, you know, some of the other triggers may not be. I also find that bringing these triggers up in my office to my patients gives them sort of a recognition so that they know that they're not going nuts, that they had a hot flash or a night sweat for a particular reason, and they can choose their poison, if you will. So one of the, a couple of the things you didn't address yet are like the vaginal dryness, um, uncomfortable sex, low libido, orgasms, and all that stuff. So what can we expect the changes to be there and what can we do about those? So vaginal dryness, which is such, you know, an all-encompassing term because what's really going on is what we call GSM, genitourinary syndrome of menopause. All of this low estrogen, because the ovaries are not producing as much of 
this estrogen any longer, starts to affect the vaginal tissue and the vulva tissue. So all the genital tissue can be affected. The tissue becomes much less elastic. It becomes much more delicate, more prone to injury, and this can lead to painful sex. Painful sex can also be a factor in lower sex drive because after all, who wants to engage in something that's uncomfortable? So over time, you know, the the brain learns that this is maybe something you don't want to engage in. The vaginal changes are usually a slightly later symptom of menopause. Um, Again, might be a little bit of a disconnect for some women, but slowly people start to recognize this. And now I think people are recognizing it right away and can take measures to, you know, actively prevent vaginal dryness and painful sex from occurring. So again, vaginal moisturizers are something that we recommend all the time for regular use. After all, we all moisturize our faces on a regular basis or our bodies. Why aren't we regularly moisturizing our vaginas? And this is something that I recommend all the time. This can either come in the form of vaginal estrogen, okay, that's the most aggressive, or an over-the-counter non-hormonal vaginal moisturizer. Again, Bonafide has addressed this with an amazing and very well-received little vaginal insert called Reverie made of hyaluronic acid, which is a very common ingredient for moisturizing. Um, And this can be used vaginally twice weekly, either on a preventative basis or a a management basis for vaginal dryness, and it will eventually make sex more comfortable, and it works quickly, again, studied. Um, Lubricant goes a really long way to help prevent pain on on demand. So in the moment during sex, to use a lubricant can be very helpful. Um, As far as orgasm and sexual drive, these are complex issues for women. And it's not just a light switch up, down, and, you know, uh, that's it. We can uh, fix things. There are so many things that also go on during this stage of life that might interfere with sexual drive and orgasmic potential. So, for example, hormones, absolutely. And we, we'll leave that for a, a whole other conversation. But hormones, uh, you know, declining can make a difference in drive. Number two, uh, think about all of the psychological factors that may be going on. What is your relationship? like. If you're having trouble in your relationship, your libido is is most likely going to be affected. Uh, So we investigate this in my practice. Um, And I'll send to a couple's counselor if necessary. Um, Number three, what about medical disease? You know, if you have diabetes or any sort of cardiovascular disease that alters blood flow to the genital area, these things are going to interfere with sex drive and also with orgasmic potential. So we will manage that. Um, As far as stress, absolutely. Somehow men seem to be able to put a lot of stress on the back burner. Women aren't so great at doing that because they've got their laundry list of things going on in their minds. So I often will recommend, you know, a dedicated date night or date morning uh, in order to be able to put all those other things in life on the back burner. But I also want to address something that you said, which I hear in practice all the time, which is the society's negative connotation about menopause. And yes, this is true. I'm not going to deny that, but I do see things changing and the tide turning. And I often really recognize the positives that are going on. So for those women who were bleeding all the time and that interfered with their sex lives, 
Well, that's gone. So this is a positive. For those women who really didn't want to have to manage contraception because they didn't want to get pregnant, that's gone. No longer needs to be managed. That's a positive. Many women felt like uh, the privacy or lack thereof was really interfering with their sexual lives. And after all, who can concentrate on orgasm and sexual relations when you've got kids all around your house who may be hearing what's going on or wondering why your door is closed? Privacy is afforded to the empty nesters. This is a positive. So focusing on these things, I think, is really important. Okay. No, that I, that's really, really helpful. But also, too, what I've heard, and I feel like I'm experiencing this, is I don't know if it's the hormone changes or age or both, but it's like once I hit 40, I'm like, whatever. And I just feel so much more in command. And then all my friends are like, oh, wait till you hit 50. It's even better. Um, so is that a hormonal change? Or do you think it's just maturity? Like, what do you think it is? I think it's a combination. Again, this is just so not black and white. Uh, there are so many variables that go into sexual drive for women. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that Again, addressing pain, addressing body image, that's a very big thing that I see in my practice, which we like to refer to as sexual self-esteem. So, you know, many, many women, especially coming out of this pandemic, are dealing with trying to manage their weight, for example, and their exercise regimens. And I think that that has an awful lot to do with whether somebody feels sexual. If you don't feel good about how you're looking or feeling on an individual basis, it's going to take its toll on your potential sexual drive. So all of these things are things we address, especially during a sexual health consultation revolving uh, around low libido and drive. So real quickly with with uh, the weight gain, I'd love to hear your perspective. I've had a lot of people sharing different things. I've heard do intermittent fasting. I've heard let it go and you know be yourself and use intuitive eating. Um, and of course, there's a lot of keto fans out there. Um, so I would love to hear. I know you said Mediterranean diet in the beginning, but I'd yeah. love your reaction to these very black and white um, seemingly diet pushes to women in this phase of life. Well, look, I think if I had the magic bullet, I'd be a very rich and famous person right now. So I don't. But this is what I do know. I do know that what matters to me as a physician and as a woman is health, health and wellness. Yes. So I think that uh, a regimen that works, that somebody will stick to because it's realistic for their lifestyle and then is also focused on health and wellness is most important. We know as an absolute fact that if your BMI is too, too high, you have a higher risk of diabetes, you have a higher risk of cardiovascular event, you may have a higher risk of cancer, your immunity may be off, and overall, many women just don't feel as well. So that's why I focus on the health aspects of things. What I will say is Mediterranean diet is a lifestyle. It is not a diet. It's not something you go on for a couple of weeks to lose a few pounds and you're done. This is something you have to commit to really all the time. And then, of course, keep in mind that not everybody sticks to everything, uh, you know, 24-7, 365. So, you know, allowances are made for being human. But the Mediterranean diet in general is helpful. This means lean proteins, minimizing red meat, uh, you know, tons of uh, green leafy vegetables, fruits and vegetables, uh, you know, use, utilizing olive oil instead of butter, uh, minimizing alcohol intake, and most of all, minimizing salt 
and using spices instead. These are all meant to, you know, the Mediterranean diet was originally uh, thought of as a cardiovascular healthful diet, but actually has benefit in so many other ways. So uh, that's the diet that I promote in my office and personally. But yeah, uh, we still want to have our cake and we still want to have our alcohol from time to time. And so it's all about moderation. This is not going to be helpful at all without exercise. So 150 minutes a week of cardio, weight training, focusing on flexibility and balance are going to be super important with aging because of the risk of osteoporosis in menopause. So these things are all important to combine. And then lastly, and probably the tallest order of all is stress reduction. Because with constant stress, cortisol levels are being secreted by our adrenal glands constantly. And what does that do? It puts visceral fat on right around the middle, which is exactly what everybody is complaining about during this time of life in my office anyway. Okay, got it. Now, I really, really appreciate you sharing this. Uh, you know, I think back, like I started learning about the impact of foods when I went through my fertility journey because of my situation, my um, reproductive endocrinologist had said no gluten or dairy. And I was like, what? And I would call him like, what about this? He goes, nope, you can't do that. I'm like, what about this? Nope. And but that was the beginning of a journey that led me to experiment. And I agree with you. It's not diet. It's a lifestyle. And I feel so free because I'll be like, I, I feel like I choose. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to have cake today and I don't feel guilty, but I don't eat cake every single day. And I just enjoy what I eat. And you know, it's, it's, I don't even think about it and it, it feels so, so good. And I feel like I'm, I'm healthy. So, um, I appreciate you saying yeah. that. Yeah. Well, I think I also practice what I preach so I can feel a little more passionate about it, Yeah. but absolutely it has to be realistic, you know, and, and to, it also has to be melded towards somebody's individual circumstances. Absolutely. So before we go into the next, um, set of topics, I, I do want to ask you, so you're an MD and, um, you are talking about all of these natural ways, including supplements, and then going into HRT. And I'd love to get your perspective on what you're seeing with your colleagues. Because like, for example, I interviewed the CEO of Evernow. And you know what they're doing is they have OBGYNs who are um, part of their telehealth network. And I had asked um, the CEO on why is it that they're not also doing supplementation? And she goes, we agree with you that a lot of these could work, but because of where the clinical trials are and people are much more comfortable and knowledgeable about HRT, that was where they were starting with. And I just thought that was so interesting. And here I am interviewing an OBGYN and you're comfortable with taking those natural steps and then going into HRT. So for those women who just kind of want to understand the dynamic and may not have an OBGYN such as yourself, Tell us what's going on and maybe some things that they can do to get what they need. And again, none of us are saying HRTs are bad, but I do think there's a stepwise process. So I'd love to hear your reaction. Sure. So I think that I was uh, really lucky because um, before I went to medical school, I actually got a master's degree in human nutrition. I've always had an interest in that. Uh, I am one of the few uh, who can marry the nutritional world and the traditional medical world because of that background. And, you know, frankly, as a physician traditionally trained, we don't get a whole lot of training in nutrition. So I was glad that I had both as, as a background. 
I also really appreciate that there's more than one way to manage a problem. And, you know, if menopausal symptoms are the problem, then I want to be able to offer my patients multiple options. I also really have a, a deep appreciation for women who can't take hormones. I mean, what about the breast cancer patient? What about the endometrial cancer patient? What about someone who suffers from migraines with an aura where hormones are not necessarily recommended? What about the person who has a genetic propensity towards blood clot? These people can't take hormones. Why should they not be offered other things that have actually been researched? So I'm a huge hormone prescriber. I think that's important for me to put out there. I'm trained in prescribing hormone therapy. I'm happy to discuss the risks and benefits with my patients, but they're not for everybody. And some people just have an opinion that they don't want to be on hormone therapy because of something that a friend went through or what a family member may have gone through. So I did want to talk about progesterone. So I know that in perimenopause, when the hormones are changing dramatically, like I had issues where I was having these very scary panic attacks. I mean, really scary. And I started talking to more and more women. So I, I want to be open about this. And it wasn't just me. Like I would have these visualizations of like people jumping through my window and jumping on me. And it was so, so bad. And I just happened to interview another um, perimenopause and menopause expert. And she was like, take progesterone, but it's probably going to be hard to get a prescription. So start to use the cream instead. And I did. And it was absolutely magical. Where does progesterone play a role? Um, I know that's part of the home run therapy. I don't know if you're counting that as um, as the one of the HRTs in your categorization, but um, I'd love to know more about that because I find it to be like one of the best and most under-discussed hormones in women's health. Uh, I think that it's difficult to answer that question without having an individual person sitting in front of me giving me their, uh, you know, their story and their symptoms. But I will say this, back to the whole perimenopausal experience, many women, like I said, they come in saying, I don't even recognize myself because my moods have been altered. And part of this experience might include a feeling of panic. A lot of women feel they're having anxiety attacks, uh, palpitations. I've heard about claustrophobia feelings uh, in women who have never had these symptoms before. And yes, hormone therapy, which I'm going to say is at times estrogen with progesterone and at times just progesterone and at times different forms of progesterone, whether it's prescription related, cream related, or whatnot, can be helpful. But again, it's really individualized. I would, I would absolutely support that those symptoms are part of some people's perimenopausal experience. And again, this goes back to making sure there's no cardiovascular issue going on, making sure the thyroid is okay, being sure we're not missing the diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder or depression because these all have overlapping symptoms and they're treated in a different way. Some of my patients will turn towards those antidepressants for these types of symptoms rather than a hormone. Um, and look, there's also some controversy and uh, discussion about some of the over-the-counter or compounded hormone therapies, including progesterone of different varieties 
because not all compounders are the same. And in fact, the two societies that we normally listen to in my world, which is ACOG and NAMS, North American Menopause Societies, they actually frown on these over-the-counter supplements because we don't really know whether they're uh, you know, what the integrity is, how, how have they been made? Are there facilities being oversought by the proper agencies to make sure that the, there's no contaminants or that they're actually delivering what they're, they're saying they're delivering? Um, in addition, you know, people absorb things differently, particularly if they are, uh, have different uh, BMIs or uh, other metabolic issues. So it's not a straightforward answer for everybody. Right. Yeah. And, you know, what's frustrating too, though, is just if the supplementation isn't working and you know some of these therapies are needed, I've, I'm just hearing so many women saying OBGYNs won't prescribe it. And it's, it's a shame, it's a real shame. Um, so you know, I guess all we can do is just continue to be educated and advocate. Not all OBGYNs want to or are trained to or are at the stages of their careers where they are you know, seeing so many menopausal patients. And I think that's really important, you know, my field has really kind of almost divided into the obstetrical end and the uh, gynecologic sides and then surgeries, urogynecology uh, and, and menopause and sexual health specialists are almost subspecialists at this time. So for your listeners, if your OBGYN doesn't seem to be you know, giving the answers that you might be interested in hearing, it's reasonable to look on the North American Menopause Society's list of trained providers, and maybe a specialist in the field of menopause might be somebody that would be a good option to uh, get another opinion from. When it comes to the supplementation, you know, when do you start and when do you finish? Like, do you finish like the day you hit menopause? Um, because I know like some people may like forget or be sick of trying to take things and maybe want to be done, but we also want to be proactive and keep ourselves stable. So how does one look at that um, if they're going the supplementation route? Yeah, again, this is uh, going to be individualized. So when it comes to hormone therapy, I think most of us reevaluate our patients on a pretty regular basis to see whether dosing needs to be changed, whether discontinuation can be considered, uh, you know, that type of thing. And I think it's similar with supplementation. Hot flashes and night sweats are not going to last forever. The average duration is about seven and a half years in the US. The average, the average uh, duration of vag vaginal dryness rather is going to be more of a chronic and progressive issue. For hot flashes and night sweats, they are not going to last forever. While they may be long lasting, average being seven and a half years, but some women experiencing those symptoms for upwards of 15 or 20 years, you know, we're gonna continue supplementation for as long as somebody may need it. For vaginal dryness and discomfort during sex, I would suggest that continuing on an indefinite basis is really going to be the most helpful uh, because that's not going to go away by itself. And in fact, unmanaged may just, uh, you know, go on. So now let's go into postmenopause. What is that experience mm -hmm. like? Um, you know, it, the hormones have kind of leveled out from my understanding and are we just coasting now? Are there th symptoms we should expect to go away that were in perimenopause? Are there new ones that appear, ones that continue? What's that experience? I would say the hot flashes and night sweats will eventually start to subside. 
the vaginal changes and sexual health changes may be things that we really need to stay on top of with whether it's moisturizers and lubricants or things to enhance blood flow to the genital tissues in order to uh, enhance sexual satisfaction. Uh, and also dealing with uh, the pelvic flora, those are things that may be requiring a little bit more active management and attention in the postmenopausal times. So what have we missed? One other thing that I think we should bring up because we haven't talked about it is something that's on a lot of women's minds right now, and that's the vaginal microbiome. The microbiome is essentially an environment that naturally contains bacteria, viruses, fungi, and Everybody kind of has a unique vaginal microbiome. We always talk about the microbiome of the gut, but my world, we're very interested in the microbiome of the vagina. During menopause and perimenopause, pH changes occur, the microbiome has changes that occur as a result of hormone changes. And this can lead to symptoms that women complain about, like discharge, like itching, like perhaps a different scent from the vagina. I'm not talking about infection, I'm just talking about changes occurring in the pH and the general milieu. Um, I see many, many women turning towards over-the-counter products like douches or washes or sprays, and actually these tend to potentially cause more troubles than not. I also see many women turning towards probiotics, and these have been helpful. So I just wanted to bring up the whole topic of the vaginal microbiome because it's a a current topic and something that is on top of mind for a lot of my patients. Oh, wow. Thank you for sharing that. So a question for you, for those who want to use the probiotic vaginally, I'd mm-hmm. love to get your reaction to that one. All of these probiotics tend to contain lactobacilli. These are, for the vagina's sake, bacteria that naturally produce uh Uh, lactic acid and hydrogen peroxide and keep the vagina in a happy place pH-wise. The vagina's natural pH is between 3.8 and 4.5. This is the acidic pH. Um, There are many probiotics for the gut that may contain some lactobacilli, but for the vagina, we um, specifically speak about multiple different strains of lactobacilli, and Clair-V, which is the probiotic that Bonafide makes, um, focuses on lactobacilli acidophilus and rhamnosus, and they do land in the vagina after oral ingestion. What you're speaking about, which is a vaginal probiotic, I don't have that much familiarity with studies on probiotics used vaginally that are available now to help with pH. But what I do know is that many of my patients are turning towards boric acid suppositories to acidify the vagina. There is you know, no information that putting yogurt in the vagina is medically helpful. But what I will say is that it surely would be soothing to put uh, cold yogurt on the, you know, not fruit, of course, plain yogurt uh, on the uh, vulva or vagina in times of a yeast infection or irritation, but this is not something that I recommend in my practice or in my professional medical opinion. With that said, women have said that this can be soothing. In terms of other food products, we don't really advise putting these things in the vagina. I know women have placed garlic or uh, other uh, issues of that nature, and again, not medically recommended, and not recommended in the nutritional world either. Let's talk about these 10-minute doctor appointments, especially when you're dealing with such a complex phase of life where there could be a lot of different things 
that are causing these different symptoms and it's not always going to be perimenopause. What can we as women do in that 10 minute space? And another is, are there like, if we're going to these menopause, perimenopause and menopause specialists, is it a different experience and longer appointments? So I guess just explain that dynamic of, we have these issues, we wanna get the right help. Oh, by the way, everything is 10 minutes. Do we, are we more proactive? Do we change our doctors? What do we do? Um, well, I, I don't know who's having 10 minute appointments other than maybe a quick check on birth control or a quick check on an infection or something of that nature. A menopause consultation, the first one where you're really taking a huge history and doing a physical and really trying to establish a, a going forward treatment plan uh, for somebody um, most likely will take a lot longer than 10 minutes, um, but follow-ups uh, just to check in and see how this treatment plan may be going, I guess, could take 10 minutes. And uh, I, I, I'm not familiar with that in my practice. Uh, but I do think that shows like this and surely a lot of uh, websites and uh articles and journals uh, where women can gain knowledge for themselves so they can come in with focused questions and, you know, really um, arm themselves with their questions that are uh, important to them and what they want to get out of their appointment would surely streamline a short appointment. Based on what you just said, I have a clarification. So, you know, when you make an appointment for a physical with a general practitioner, we know that that is a long appointment. They have a very specific time. You know, I think different doctors take different approaches between fast and longer appointments. But based on something you said, can you make a menopause or like a, you know, some kind of a different kind of appointment that's with an OBGYN that's not that quicker appointment? Because I feel like when I go to my OBGYN, it's pap smear. I have like two minutes to bring up questions and then I'm out of there. But in the physical, it's 45 minutes. We typically do a, you know, a general OBGYN preventative checkup. Yeah, it's going to be a 15-20 minute appointment, which you can get a lot done at that time, especially if you have a focused way of doing your history, your physical, and your plan. But everybody's different. If somebody comes in with a very specific complaint that might be complex, or they're coming in for their first perimenopause or menopause consultation, and surely a sexual health consultation, the first initial visit, I can't really imagine getting that appropriately taken care of in 10 minutes. Uh, But look, uh, power to somebody who can, especially if they have a lot of physician extenders or they have all this information to review uh, in advance, perhaps a visit can be that short and still quite effective. Um, The online sites that are having telehealth visits for for perimenopause and menopause might be able to assess uh, quizzes or questionnaires as a beforehand thing and then focus an appointment in, in a short period of time. But that's not something that I'm really familiar with in my practice. So I guess what I'm also hearing is if you're going to your typical OBGYN, it's more than just, just your checkup and you feel like you're in this phase, you might even wanna just see if you could book it as a consultation for perimenopause and maybe they code that differently for the appointment time. I just never thought about it, honestly. I, I always just look at it as, oh, I go in for a pap smear, that's it, in and out. So yeah. thank you for that. Well, look, I think it would be frustrating for somebody to book a regular checkup where the provider is expecting to spend a particular amount of time and focus their uh, visit on something. And then, you know, very standard, be, by the way, I also have this, and by the way, I also have that, and by the way, I have this third thing that I want to talk to you about. And, you know, nobody wants to rush anybody through, but quite frankly, many of those problems are 
involved and in order to afford the proper amount of time and attention separate appointments may need to be made and okay. i think that's fair both on both sides oh, absolutely no it absolutely is and it's helpful to know because i don't know if any of us would think of it because we don't always know mm -hmm. how things work at the doctor's office so thank you so yeah. much yeah so um in closing i'd love to get your thoughts and reactions on what your message would be to those experiencing the perimenopause menopause and postmenopause phase of life? Mm, that's a good question. I think just to put it very briefly, uh, perimenopause and menopause are not diseases. And I am hoping that in the span of my career that the you know implication of these stages of our lives kind of get rephrased into just life stages that we manage like everything else. So uh, they are, symptoms are manageable in most cases. Uh, people need to arm themselves with information and uh, make good choices and feel comfortable discussing all of these issues. So knowledge is power when it comes to this and face it in a proactive, optimistic way if possible. Thank you. What a great way to end. And I truly appreciate your perspective. And and I, I again, appreciate that you're an MD in this area, because um, I know a lot of the folks I've interviewed are naturopaths. And it was just a great, great perspective. And, and I really appreciate your time. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.